Uh, so the last couple of times I've shared to a group similar to this, it's been more topical and not a, a scripture passage straight out from the Bible. So tonight I'm going to do a little bit of both because it's hard for me to not take what I've, what I've seen or read in the Bible and apply it to a certain topic or, or issue. Um, so as you can see, I'm going to talk about discernment tonight. Discernment is something that's been on my heart lately. Um, I feel like I've been learning a lot about it in my time with, with the Lord and uh, reading the scripture. And I think it's important f- for us to, um, particularly as men, uh, to lead your family. It's important to be able to identify the things that um, isn't from the Lord. And there's a lot of those things in our world today that aren't from the Lord. And so, um, but I will be talking to everybody and not just, not just the men. We, we have a very active enemy in our world today that seeks to destroy our lives and to attack God's people. And so discernment is something I think that we need. Um, so a passage in particular I'm going to share uh, tonight is 1 Kings, but we'll get there in, in a moment. One chapter in particular, chapter 13, really stood out to me for, for many reasons, and we'll get into that. It might seem odd at first, but hopefully it makes sense as we go through. Um, so to begin... I want to talk about some things that are a threat to, to the church. Last week, Brian talked about Hanukkah, um, and the whole story of Hanukkah was, um, you know, Alexander the Great had conquered a whole, whole area in, in the Europe and Asia area, um, I think even some of Africa. And when he died, he divided his kingdom, and Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the generals that um, was chosen to take over some of that area, and he was kind of this antichrist figure to the, the Hebrew people or to the Israelites um, in that day. And so I want to kind of touch on a little bit of a follow-up to that. You know, he's this antichrist figure, and the antichrist seems like it might be easy to identify, right? Because he's like, you know, Satan is, is the villain of the Bible, if you will. You know, he, he is God's... Um, I mean, God doesn't have any enemies because enemies, I mean, I guess technically, but it doesn't matter because God's all-powerful and wins anyway. So, um, but the Antichrist was was really challenging for, for the church. And, but the Bible talks about that, that the Antichrist will deceive many. And so I thought it was important to note uh, here in my obvious threat section um, on that. His, his goal is to wage war on God's people and ultimately against Jesus. I also want to talk about false teachers or doctrines. You know, there's a lot of different religions out there, Islam, Hinduism, Church of Scientology, the like. The list goes on um, for a while. And then maybe another obvious threat, as we've all experienced here the last couple of years, overreaching governments, and it's not just isolated to the United States, but all over the world. Um, I think the Bible talks about Satan being the prince of the earth. He has his hand in a lot of stuff. He controls a lot of stuff here on this temporal earth. Um, And and governments is just one one of those. And then persecution also. This is not a new thing by any means. The early church um, experienced this in in a great way. Acts talks about that. Uh, The Holocaust, World War II, and then, you know, communist type type governments like China and whatnot um, are very anti-God and anti-church. So these are things that are maybe more easily identified, 
um, but we're going to look at some, some things a little briefly that, that may not be so easily identified. Hidden threats or little threats. Um, could be something that's maybe new, you maybe not heard of it, and maybe, um, or maybe it's been around for a while, uh, but not little in severity. Some of these things can be quite dangerous, but harder to identify, see, and understand. Things that maybe sound good at first on a surface level. And I'm not going to go into these in great detail. I'm just kind of give you a little uh, definition to these. But the first one, uh, critical theory and intersectionality. Critical theory is a Marxist idea that in order to bring justice to an oppressed group, a system or systems must be completely restructured in order to essentially oppress the oppressor. And that's kind of their definition of, of justice. Intersectionality is, like, is the idea that the more areas or personal experiences that, or, or traits that an individual has or can check a box, the more valuable that person's experience is. And then postmodernism. Um, these are terms that I didn't really know um, a year and a half ago or two years ago, um, but, but they are important to know about, I think. Postmodernism is the denial of absolute truth and replaced with personal experience. A great example of this is something that we probably see on social media when someone will say, I speak my truth. You know? <laughs> I think the only truth we need to be worried about is what the Bible says and not someone's opinion or experience. Humanism slash modernism. This is uh, the idea that man can achieve his own enlightenment, which is a new age term. Um, and united, man can do anything. Uh, a great example of this is Genesis 9, the Tower of Babel. Everyone came together to essentially you know, become more powerful than God. And that, that's kinda, that was their idea. And then obviously God squashed that uh, very quickly and showed his power and sovereignty there. But this idea is still alive and well today. Um, I mean... In the field of technology or science, how often do we see um, things like man is so advanced or we're, we're constantly building on, on what we know or what we think we know? And um, this, you know, the technology they use in this vaccine, I think, is a good example of that because the science is it's pretty impressive if you think about it. But I think man has uh, a tendency to take something like that and elevate it, and elevate ourselves, um, essentially, and, and ultimately over God. And so I wanted to note that as well. And the last one, social justice, seeks to redistribute wealth, opportunities, and privileges in order to obtain a secular definition of fair, an attempt to bring justice to a society without the gospel, totally ignoring the issue of sin and consequence, and also a biblical worldview. So all these things... Um, might sound good at first on a surface level. You know, we, justice is a good thing. Our whole country is, is built on the idea of having order and justice. Order and justice is, is biblical. That's a biblical idea. But when you add in some of these other things and other terms, it starts to skew quite quickly. And when you dig into these things a little bit more, it becomes clear that they are quite evil and from the pit of hell. One thing that they all have in common is, at their core, they seek to dismantle and discredit the authority of God's word. 
So how are we to know what is good? Discernment. So we're going to look at what discernment actually is. The definition of discernment in the word discernment in the Webster's Dictionary is the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. I found that interesting. Not, not able to know what's good or what is wise, but to, what, to, put, to identify something that's obscure. The American Heritage Dictionary defines the word obscure as deficient in light. In other words, dark. So this, this being discerning isn't knowing what, what is right or what is good right off the bat, but it's identifying what is not good or what is not right in order to know and confirm what is good. Some of you have probably seen uh, Spurgeon's quote on this. He says, Discernment is not a matter of simply telling the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is telling the difference between right and almost right. And I think that's, that uh, you know, hits the nail on the head. Um, and you've probably heard it before. I've heard this before, too, but wanted to um, throw this in here, too. The, the FBI, when they're, when they're teaching their agents how to detect a counterfeit $100 bill, they, they don't study the counterfeits. They study the original. They study the, the thing that is right. And so when they're, when they're given a counterfeit $100 bill, they can pretty much instantly tell the differences, even if the ink is, is just a, a, little, a slightly different color. They, they're trained in such a way to know, to know that and to, to know all the differences of, of the counterfeits because they spend so much time and energy studying the real thing. And so I think we can apply that to our uh, Christian walk as well. So why do we need discernment? So for one thing, Jesus tells us we do. In Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree does, does not bear f- good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus gives us a little bit of an instruction uh, manual here to recognize false prophets. Um, he reiterates himself a little bit here in 17 and 18, and I, th- I think that is just to drive the point home further. So we see that healthy, tr- healthy trees equals good fruit, diseased tree equals bad fruit. And then he follows it up with another sentence, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and in, in a, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So kind of flipping it a little bit, confirming his previous statement. And then ends with, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so a lot of times in, in Christianity, we're, we're told not to judge, like God is the judge, we shouldn't do that. But I think here it's okay to, and even commanded to a, a little bit maybe, to judge a prophet, or in this case, you know, a teacher or a pastor or whatever the case may be. Judge them by their fruits. You know, God is, Jesus is telling us that. Not judge in a condemning way, that's up to the Lord, um, but uh, to to look at, yeah, evaluate, that's a great word for it, to look at what um, that person is providing, look at, or, uh, yeah, look at what they're offering, I guess, um, and look at their whole life before you just dive in to their teaching. It sounds simple, but 
uh, sometimes it can be quite difficult because we don't know the heart of man. Only God does. And so we all, all we have is, is what we can see, that outward appearance almost. Also, uh, for our protection, Job 28.28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And so this is actually um, Job quoting God here. Uh, Job, in chapter 28 and 27, the chapter before it, he's having this conversation with God, lamenting about all of his struggles. We all know the story of Job. He has everything ripped from him. And his wife and friends are telling him to curse God, but he, he stands firm and, and just endures um, all while praising God. But in this conversation, he's really crying out to God for, for help. And so God is having this really lengthy conversation. If You can go read it if you want. Um, but in chapter 28, he's, he's comparing all these things to wisdom. And he's saying wisdom is more precious than, than jewels and, and metals and gold and all this stuff. And, and then asks, where is wisdom found? And so he ends, the very last verse of this chapter is this verse. And he says, and he said to man, I, the, the he here is referring to God. Behold, God talking, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And I, I think this statement is you know, short, but very profound as well. Uh, most scholars believe this might have been something that God might have said to Adam and Eve but that's not documented anywhere. That's just what most people th- think because um, there's some other mentions in Job that point to the story of creation. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. It's not recorded, but the statement thus nonetheless is true. Behold being a kind of a um, you know, attention bringer where it means that what I'm about to say is very important, so listen up. Turning away from evil is understanding. You know, that's it. That's, that's simple. If we can turn away from evil, God is telling us that that is understanding right there. We don't need to go gain more knowledge or, or innovate on more technology to make ourselves better. We just need to not sin. That very opposite of humanism. Okay, so now we're going to get into 1 Kings chapter 13. Initially, I wasn't going to put all of the text up here, but... I like the whole chapter, so I decided to anyway. So you might have to bear with me a little bit. I'll try to go a little bit quicker on some of these. So the backstory of chapter 13 and chapter 12, uh, Jeroboam is the king of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah because they split. Um, Jeroboam was not a God-following king. He was very evil. He wants to keep, he wants to keep the people in the nation of Israel and not travel to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Um, he doesn't want them to go there and offer the sacrifices like what was commanded and, and celebrate the feasts in Jerusalem. All of that was commanded. He didn't want them doing that because he thought that if they did, they would turn back to God, which he was probably right. They, they might have. Um, and so in an effort to keep the people in the nation of Israel, he builds all these alternate altars and and idols, and says, you don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem. You can just stay here. Um, he actually made golden calves, too. What would you say? Oh. I'm not good with puns. <laughs> so he makes golden calves just like Aaron did at Mount Sinai. I don't know what the... I don't know why golden calves all the time, but he did. 
Um, he even instituted his own feasts uh, around the same time of tabernacles, actually. So he provided even an alternate for the most uh, celebration-esque uh, feast that the Jews would have done at this time. So very evil, evil king. So like many other times in the Bible, God sends someone to deliver a message of judgment. So right away here, um, well, let's just read it. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So right away here in the first few verses, we see a you know, somewhat random, mysterious man of God, doesn't even tell us the name, um, is, is raised up, given a word from the Lord to go deliver this message. And he, it, his, his first words are, are to an altar. It's not even to Jeroboam. It's to this inanimate object, which I found really interesting. And he continues, and he gave the same and he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. So, like I mentioned, other, like in other times of the Bible, a prophet is used to, for, for correction or rebuke. Um, Jeroboam tries to nip it in the bud, so to speak, here, and says, seize him, and in doing so, his hand dries up. And it, it, it says he could not drop back to himself, so I kind of imagine like all the way up to his shoulder where it's just stiff. So verse 5, immediately um, that prophecy or message is immediately fulfilled. The altar was also torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as it was before. So immediately the, the message of the prophet is, is fulfilled. It happens. Jeroboam then immediately asks for healing, even though he didn't want the guy there anyway. But now that he's suffered uh, an injury or uh, some affliction, is now seeking the help of the person he's trying to, or the, you know, God, he's trying to keep the people from worshiping God, but yet is seeking God's help in, in this instance. And so God heals it right away. So we're six verses into this chapter, and we've seen a mysterious man of God with no name who starts talking to an altar. The altar is somehow destroyed right away, and Jeroboam hands, or his hand dries up and then gets restored. So this is why I wanted to not just talk about a tiny bit of this. I wanted to kind of talk about all of it because I find it really interesting. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his concise commentary, talks about this very instance. He says, Jeroboam looked for help, not from his calves, but from God only, from his power and his favor. The time may come when those that hate the preaching would be glad of the prayers of the faithful ministers. Jeroboam does not desire the prophet to pray that his sin might be pardoned, and his heart changed, but only that his hand might be restored. He seemed affected for the present with both the judgment and the mercy, but the impression wore off. I found that last sentence very uh, 
convicting because sometimes I find in my own life that, you know, when things are good in my life, you know, I may, may not pray quite as much because things are good. But as soon as things get bad, I recognize my need for help and my dependence on God, and that's when I pray more. But I think we should always seek, seek the Lord in our lives, no matter what our circumstances. Okay, so moving on. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You should neither eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. So it seems that Jeroboam, I don't know his intentions here, it doesn't really specifically say, but he, he extends an invitation for this man of God to come home. Maybe he is excited he has his hand back and wants to give him, you know, to thank him. Maybe he has some evil intentions bringing him back and making him vulnerable, I don't know. Um, but he extends this invitation, which even if it's an evil king, you know, and being invited to the king's house is somewhat rare and probably pretty prestigious. And so this man could have, could have cashed in on the act of the Lord healing him, but he, he stays with what he was commanded to do um, and, and obeys. So he says no. The prophet declines, uh, citing that the Lord uh, commanded him that he should specifically not do those things. Um, this is also from uh, Matthew Henry's commentary. I don't have it up here. God forbade his messenger to eat or drink in Bethel to show his detestation of their idolatry and apostasy from God and to teach us not to have fellowship with the works of darkness. Those have not, those have not learned self-denial who cannot forbear one forbidden meal. And so I think in his uh, estimation, I think he's right. The Lord didn't want him to experience or participate in anything in Bethel or the kingdom of Israel because of their uh, evilness and, and uh, rebellion. And so he is told to just go back home. So he obeys the, the command. He's turning away from evil, um, as Job 28 talks about. Now an old prophet, this is a new guy, li that was living in, in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father that the words, uh, the words that he had spoken to the king, and their father said to them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the way that the man of God who came from Judah had gone. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came to Judah? And he said, I am. Um, so there, again, is not a whole lot of detail here on this old prophet. Uh, the Bible calls him a prophet. And in every instance of the word prophet I could find, it actually meant prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and so I, d I don't know much about him other than what's in the scripture. But this, the, in the text, it says he goes out to find this guy. So he hears about this story and immediately goes out to find him. Maybe to thank him. Maybe he didn't like all of the evil that, that Jeroboam was doing in the, the rebellion, in the sacrifices and all that. Maybe he didn't like that and wanted to, to kind of show his thanks. We're not told, but, but maybe. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. 
Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, You shall now neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And this verse, this series of verses, what really caught my eye when I read through this the first time. The old prophet offers him the exact same invitation that King Jeroboam did to eat bread and drink water. The man responds just like he did with with the king. No, God told me not to. Um, I can't do that. The old prophet then then tells him something false. He he lies. Uh, saying that the, the angel of the Lord told me to come get you, to take you home, and eat bread and drink water. And so the guy's like, oh, well, in that case, might as well, basically. I've always struggled with that, because the God Most High says, don't do this. But an angel says it's okay. Yeah, that's a great point. That's... You know, and I, we shouldn't, you know, this is a great example of a lack of discernment, I think, right? We shouldn't just take a man that, that says he's a prophet, and in this case he was a prophet. The Bible calls him a prophet. Um, but he says something that's, that's not true. Um, and so the, the man of God in the first place should have made an attempt to, to seek God's direction in this rather, rather than just taking the man at his word. Um, and I think Andrew makes a good point. It was an angel. He said it was an angel the Lord came to me. And maybe he did see something. And it wasn't from God. We, we don't know. He says he was lying. <laughs> it does say he was lying. What? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, we don't know, but we should always go with the higher, the higher power being God. Always. Maybe it was what? Maybe it was what? So I think our takeaway from this is that we shouldn't take whatever a pastor or a, you know, a Bible study teacher uh, a YouTuber, a book author, or a podcaster says and believe it just because we should always we should always go back to the Bible and 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 make sure. You know, Acts 17 talks about the the people of Berea, the Bereans, that they after hearing those things they immediately went back and looked in the Bible for themselves. So First John 4 talks about testing spirits, beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So not only does, does John say to, to test the spirits, but he says don't believe every spirit. He, he doesn't say don't believe things that might look like or seem like spirits, he's, he's saying there are spirits that you will hear from that, that aren't from God. So don't, don't believe everything that you, that you hear that's from a spirit. Um, and then he goes on to tell us what to do in that case. He says to test the spirits, to see whether they confess Jesus being God's Son in the flesh. Uh, Ephesians 6 talks about not wrestling with flesh and, blo- flesh and blood, but principalities, powers of the air. Um, I think that's kind of what this is talking about, those evil spirits that, that speak to people. Um, there are many false prophets. It um, doesn't say 
if there ever are false prophets in your midst, it doesn't leave it up to possibility. It says there are. They have already gone out into the world. They're here already. Um, so how do we test them? Confess Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God, and came in the flesh to conquer death and cover our sin. If the Spirit doesn't do that, it's not only not from God, but it's the Spirit of the Antichrist. That's what it says. Which is already here, by the way. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to... Well, we should back up and recap what's, what's going on so far. So the man of God tells the old prophet he can't. The guy lies and says, An angel of the Lord told me to come get you and feed you and give you a drink. He believes him, essentially disobeying God's command, and they're here at the table. So the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet, the guy who lied, who had brought him back, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, Because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but have come back and have eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So the Lord then speaks to this old prophet. Finally, didn't do it before, even though he said he did. Um, and then says, because this guy disobeyed, he's, he's not going to go to the tomb of his fathers. Basically, he's not going to make it back home. Essentially is what he's been told here. Because of his disobedience and failure to keep the command that God gave him and his failure to test every spirit. And after he had eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. And the lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Uh, what's interesting here is that the donkey, after, after the lion comes and kills the guy, the donkey just stands there, even though there's a lion. The lion also just stands there and doesn't kill the donkey. And so I think that is just God using animals in this case to carry out his wrath and, and a consequence. This wasn't just a random attack by a hungry lion. This was God using his creation to deliver this um, consequence. All right, verse 26. And when the prophet had, who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the, did I go too far? No. Uh, it is the man of God who disobeys, who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his sons, saddle the donkey. So again, these sons are saddling the donkey for their dad. They saddled it, and he went and found his body down in the road, and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. So the donkey and the lion are still standing there. I don't know how far away from the town that this was, but it probably was a little ways, and so the, the donkey and lion would have been standing here for quite a while, which is further proof that this was a divine consequence from the Lord. Um, and so here the, the, the prophet kind of, he hears the story, he puts two and two together, concludes that the, the man of God he invited is the guy that they're talking about that's dead. And so he goes to, to find that body. And the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid the body in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, 
Bury me in the grave in which this man, in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying that he called out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. So it seems here that this old prophet, um, you know, he's he's sad. It says he mourns him. Um, maybe he feels a little bit responsible for telling a lie. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't get it. I don't get why he ever lied to him in the first place. I don't know. And, and he's so remorseful. The only thing I could kind of come up with in going through this is that he was so excited for another prophet delivering some words of judgment to Jeroboam from the Lord. He wanted to like, you know, have a meal with him and maybe chat with him. Yeah, he totally lied, but I think maybe he selfishly, he wanted to spend time with another prophet of the Lord. And yeah, he he sinned for sure. So anyway, he he calls him my brother. So he's communicating maybe a sense of camaraderie here. I don't know. He definitely feels remorse at this point. He lays the body in its own grave, showing respect for the body of the man of God that he lied to. Um, this fulfilled what... God told the, the prophet that lied to say to the man of God that you're not going to make it to the tomb of your fathers. And, and then uh, the last thing, the old prophet says to his sons, when I die, bury me in this exact same place. Um, because what the guy said is going to happen here is going to happen. So he has faith that the word of the Lord um, that was spoken by the man, of the man of God to the altar and also to Jeroboam, he believed that that would eventually happen. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Um, So even after his hand was healed, um, he didn't turn from his evil way. He continued. And also, it's interesting that Jeroboam made priests out of whoever wanted to be. If you wanted to be a priest, boom, you were ordained. Um, despite God giving the, the law and the standard that only priests, a priest can only come from the tribe of Levi. Um, so further rebellion um, and uh, rejection of God's word. One thing that, you know, in coming here and listening to Brian, one thing that's really stuck out to me is, now I mentioned it briefly at Mount Sinai when Aaron makes those golden calves because Moses is up on the mountain and people are getting kind of impatient. He creates these golden calves and said, here, now you can worship, your, worship our Lord. And so it wasn't, he, didn't, he wasn't saying worship the calves. He's saying still worship the Lord, but we're going to do it this way. And the in the presence. Used to in Egypt. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, I totally agree that that, it, that has happened today still. So some biblical examples. Obviously, we just read through the whole chapter of 1 Kings 13 and looked at a, an example of someone not having discernment and, and paying for it with their life. Um, we looked earlier, Jesus says it in Matthew 7. Um, another example I kind of want to touch on is Solomon. Solomon is, obviously we all know that he's, you know, he was given great wisdom by God. I think the Bible talks about him being the wisest man ever and will ever live, I think. I'm pretty sure I probably should look that up. Um, so when Solomon becomes king and immediately pretty much builds the temple um, because he wanted to fulfill God's promise to his father David. 
and after it's built and all this, the Lord asks him, what shall I give you? Ask, ask what you want, and I'll give it to you. Solomon responds, essentially, he feels inadequate to be David's successor on the throne. Um, he talks about himself being young and only a child. Doesn't know, he doesn't know how to be king. He's expressing all of this to God. And then he gives his response. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, this your great people? So here, Solomon's motivation is interesting. He doesn't want to be wise. First, he doesn't want to be wise for his own gain. Um, but he doesn't even want to be wise in order to know God more or to know more of God. He, his, at least according to this verse, his sole motivation is to govern God's people, in a sense, be obedient to his role, or be obedient to God in his role on the throne as king. And so I, I found that really interesting. And then so God gives him all this wisdom, and then he says, because you've asked something so selfless, I'm going to make you rich as well. Until his wife. In, until later, up. yeah. <laughs> So what now? We, we've, we've looked at and we've under, we kind of understand what discernment is. We looked at some examples. We understand that there are false prophets, false teachings, um, and the spirit of the Antichrist among us or in our midst. We understand that we need discernment, but how do we go about learning to discern? Um, so let's, we can go to the, the Bible here. 2 Thessalonians 2, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Um. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. Some translations say teachings. Um, and I think for what we're talking about today, teachings uh, is what I want to touch on here. Not that, you know, the festivals and biblical feasts and, and laws and whatnot, those traditions aren't good. They are good, very good. But the, the Bible, the teachings of the Bible is what we need in order to stand firm. So the 12 verses of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 are all about Paul describing to the people of Thessalonica about what the Antichrist will look like. And so it's somewhat doom and gloom. Uh, but then immediately Paul says, but we ought to always give thanks because through, through Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice, we have a way to defeat this. By the spirit and belief in the truth, the Bible, the belief in the Bible, the following of the Bible, we, we have a, an action plan, so to speak. So he says, we are saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth, Bible and the gospel, to obtain glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, so then brothers, he says. In other words, because of Jesus' redemptive blood, we have been given the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. We can stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught to us by the word or the letter. Also, in Paul in 1 Thessalonians um, talks about... Um, to, to not overcorrect. You know, we, we don't want to believe every spirit, but we shouldn't just discount every, every word from a spirit or, or every teaching from a spirit. Um, he says, to, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. 
We need to always authenticate or uh, validate. Um, and a little bit before, he, he talks about be at peace among yourselves. Um, some people will use this verse and, and say we need to have unity in the church. We need to be at peace with one another. But it, it's almost an excuse to avoid um, talking about social issues and what the Bible might say about that kind of issue and, and how we need to respond in a biblical, godly way. Uh, to things that are clearly against against God. Uh, a couple examples of this that I, I came up with w- were, you know, not condemning abortion from the pulpit because it might offend someone that's giving to your church, um, and not wanting to, you know, lose tax exemption status since the I, or the issue and act of abortion is very um, what. Politicized, yeah. It's, it's all over in our political realm. And since churches are uh, a business with a, a tax exemption ID and whatnot, some churches are worried about losing that. And so they maybe shy away from some of those issues that are really important and detestable to God. Um, already talked about that. So rather than just discounting everything, we need to test it. And then at the end, he says, hold fast to what is good, something that Paul also talks about in Romans 12, pretty much the exact same way. And it's a, I found it to be a common theme in the Bible that the apostles are always talking about, um, to hold fast to what is good and stand firm. So here we're going to look at Second Peter. The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, who will, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality? Sensuality. Sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Uh, so it says some false teachers will be secret, secretive. They're going to do it quietly and, and uh, try to hide it. Um, some will even go so far to deny Jesus, essentially is what this is saying. Um, the words in their greed will exploit you from their fault with false words reminded me of uh, the Prosperity Gospel, the American Gospel films on YouTube, um, and maybe there's just a website. Talk specifically about this and how some, some pa- big pastors in the Prosperity Gospel movement will deceive and, and have... Uh, staged members in their congregation act like they're being healed to kind of generate this vibe and this energy to get people to give more. They tell their people to give more so God answers your prayer for your your injured uh, relative or your sick relative, uh, which is super evil. But um, those films, if you haven't seen them, go watch them. It exposed this heresy um, of them taking advantage of people. So a little exercise here. If you move to a new town and we're looking for a church, and saw this statement on the beliefs page of a church. Freedom through salvation. Salvation frees us from the power of the devil. Sin, lies, sickness, and torment. Would you think that church is sound? Why, Why is that? It means it's time for repentance. Repentance and turning from sin. Not just the fact that, oh, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm good. Yeah. It doesn't even talk about Jesus. No. <laughs> That's the part that bothers me. Yeah. <laughs> Which church did you get this from? 
Bonus points if you can guess. <laughs> no. It's one of the biggest churches in America. Bethel. Bethel. Nailed it. Do they talk? But they it is from. Jesus. They uh, mention. And they say that they believe, they say Jesus one time in their whole beliefs. And they say Christ a few times. But yeah. They say God multiple times. And they say, like, they believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. But that's the only other reference to Jesus, and it is not said by name. Yep. Well, and that's the thing you just, whatever scripture it was, that's how you know that the prophet is true. They say Jesus is Lord. Well, they have earth shaking. Yeah, so the, the errors I found in this were just, just as you guys said, you guys nailed it, so good job. Uh, no mention of Jesus as the author of our salvation. Uh, like you said, Deb, 1 John 4, Jesus says to test the spirits, whether they confess Jesus. This, necess- this isn't necessarily a spirit, it's just text, but it omits Jesus. And I think, I think we can take that same... Um, action or idea and apply it to this even though it's text. However, at face value, none of this looks wrong either. What it should say is salvation lulls us into a sense of false security hmm. which puts us right in the power of the devil. Right. Yep, and it, so it literally says salvation frees us from sickness and torment, basically. Yeah, that, that's the torment. Which is what, which is what they teach. Um, but it doesn't say salvation from what? Right. And so, yeah, it doesn't, like like uh, Andrew said earlier, it doesn't talk about sin or the need for repentance of that sin. Sin and a belief that Jesus paid for that sin in a changed heart. There's none of that verbiage in here. Um, obviously, in heaven, we will be free from all of this stuff. But the Bible does not promise that we'll be free from that stuff here, even after we've accepted Jesus as our Savior and have repented. Yes. Joy. They do not say here. They don't. It's very vague. That's you know, okay. it it doesn't even go to two lines on a PowerPoint. So, Second Peter one nineteen. We also have the word of the prophets as confirmed beyond doubt, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hands. So what? Hearts. Yeah, I don't know why it's in hands. <laughs> So, <laughs> Peter says, word of the prophets, what is that? Well, it's the scriptures. Um, the Bible at this time that they had was a lot of writings from the prophets, as well as Torah and the story of creation and all that, Psalms, Proverbs, whatnot. Uh, the New Testament was, was still being written. Peter here is writing the letter that ends up in the New Testament. So that's all being compiled. So what he's talking about is is the, the Old Testament words of the prophets which point to Jesus who came and Peter was a disciple. And so Peter is saying, we have the words of the prophet pointed to Jesus. Jesus was my friend. Confirmed that all this is true beyond doubt. And because of that, you would do well to pay attention to it. Why is that? Because it's a lamp in a dark place. Uh, Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the Bible is key to us as believers. The, the earlier verses in Paul's writings um, talks about holding fast to the teachings. Peter, we just looked at, says to pay attention to it. 
And here the author of Hebrews talks about the word of God being living and active uh, with the ability to teach. Second Timothy talks about scripture, all scripture being God-breathed and useful for instruction, for conviction and correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete. Um, back here to Hebrews, he says, um, it's the piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, so the Bible doesn't help us discern just the outward thoughts, but it helps us to discern our own thoughts and our own hearts and t- intentions to guard against our fleshly desires. Another series of verses here from Hebrews, this time chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's saying we can distinguish good from evil. We do that by having powers of discernment. How do we get powers of discernment? We get powers of discernment by being trained by constant practice. The old mantra of practice makes perfect kind of applies here. You know, the, the more that we can distinguish good and evil comes from the, the more that we know scriptures. Uh, basically, be a good student in the word, I think, is kind of what he's saying, um, talking about being highly trained here. Why do we need to be highly trained? Well, one, to discern uh, right from wrong, but also to teach others how to do that. People that aren't as um, mature in in their faith, he talks about you you need someone to teach you, again, these basic things. So everyone, um, well, not everyone, but there are Christians at certain levels, and we're we're called to help one another and to share. Iron sharpens iron, that, that kind of thing. And in that is being obedient. So... The, the final challenge for us um, in this, um, I think, and I just want to touch on a couple more issues. This is not an exhaustive uh, list by any means. I don't have them up here either. Um, but like I talked about earlier, unity in the church. Do we prefer no disputes over the truth of Scripture? Or should we, should we focus on the truth? And if there's a dispute, we trust that the Lord is is uh, refining us throughout that. Uh, women's roles in the church, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Um, do we value being set apart by living in obedience, or do we want to be parallel to the society that's going on around us? Um, we need to fight for, for the truth and see what God has to say about that issue in, in that topic. Uh, morality compromise, abortion and, and same-sex marriage and the like. Would we rather avoid preaching and following the truth or just keep quiet so no one has to leave the church or get offended. And lastly, the, the cheap grace gospel. Um, phrases like, love them where they are. Avoiding talking about the sin and just, and just trying to bring them to salvation through love, and that's it. Um, but like Andrew spotted immediately in that, in that phrase on that beliefs page, there was no um, talk about repentance, which is, which we need to have in order to be saved. Um, another phrase is, God loves you just the way you are, which is true. He loves all of his creation, 
But unless we repent of our sin and have a heart change, turning away from sin, as I've mentioned many times, we are not saved. Hallelujah for grace, because none of us are perfect in that. However, we, we need to repent. That's where it starts. It, re, it starts with repentance, acknowledgement of our own sin, and then um, seeking the Lord and His truth daily. Uh, so something I've noticed over the, or those things are, the, are what I've noticed over the last few months and years. Um, when something doesn't, when something sounds okay at first, but maybe not quite right, uh, oftentimes it's because people misuse terms or even redefine those terms. Um, justice, for ex- instance, is a great example of this. Social justice, or that phrase, isn't justice at all. Um, the, the Bible does a good job in, in, in God's law. When God gives Moses his law, that, that talks about justice. And God is the ultimate giver of justice. Jesus will judge the whole world someday. And that is justice. We don't need to um, try to do this on our own outside of the Bible. It's folly. We need to let the words of the Bible and the Holy Spirit help us to define and identify these things when things aren't quite right. And so to close, um, my wife suggests I use this quote, which I agree because it's really good, from Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Elizabeth Elliot says, the word of God I think of as a straight edge, which shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of scripture. So it's not about what we think or even what we feel. It's about taking those things and what we observe and what we hear and what maybe even what we read and taking that, measuring it up to Scripture, comparing it to what God says since He is the ultimate authority. So my final challenge to you and to myself also is to make time to read the Bible. Um, Hebrews talked about that. To, to be highly trained, you need to spend time in the only way to become trained in the truth is to spend time in the Word learning that truth. We need to study it and practice, like Hebrews 5 said. Um, the last part of that, that verse in Hebrews 5 was, For those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, I guess let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your Bible, for your word to us that we can have access to um, and use um, in our life. Thank you also for the Holy Spirit that is with us always, that you gave us after, after you ascended into heaven. We thank you for, for giving us a path forward. We don't have to walk this world, walk this earth without um, a set of instructions or, or a guide. We thank you so much for that. Lord, we ask you that, that as we leave this place and go um, our separate ways, that, that these words, these truths would stay with us, that we would have a renewed desire to follow truth no matter what, to not compromise, um, and to be set apart from the world. Your, your, word, is, um, your word is offensive to some that, that don't believe it, but help us to not be afraid of that social rejection and having fear of man, but rather have a fear of a fear of God. Uh, fear, fear of God was what turns, or is, is what is what wisdom is, as Job says. 
So Lord, I pray that you speak to speak to us through your word this week. Help us to have a desire and a, um, a yearning for your word and teach us through it. Lord, I thank you for everyone that made it out tonight. I pray that you, you would uh, bless our conversation. May we glorify you in, in, our, in our words tonight. In your precious name, amen.